Adam Hochschild is a historian and the author of American Midnight, A Great War, A Violent Peace, and Democracy's Forgotten Crisis. This is Adam Hochschild. I'm Duncan Gammy. You're listening to Dunk Tank. Uh, all right. I'm here with Adam Hochschild. Uh, thank you very much for joining me today. You bet. Good to be with you. Uh, so you've written a number of books. Most recently, uh, this book I wanted to talk to you about today, American Midnight, The Great War, A Violent Peace, and Democracy's Forgotten Crisis. Uh, very ominous title. Um, <laughs> is this, when you say this is an American midnight, a lot of people, uh, particularly within the past five years, let's say, uh, have felt that we are in a, a time of crisis or a midnight uh were, were you deliberately trying to evoke a comparison um with this title uh well it's true we've been through a, a rough time in the last uh, few years which i think peaked uh, january 6 2021 with the invasion of the capital um something really unprecedented in american history but i think whether or not all of that had happened the period that I wrote about in American Midnight, 1917 through 21, is a time that all Americans should know much more about because it tends to get swept under the rug. It tends to get left out of the standard high school history textbook. Um, and it's the time when I think it was the greatest assault on constitutional liberties in this country since the immediate aftermath of slavery. And that's what I was trying to describe in the book. And uh, of course, this period, 1917 to 1921, uh, World War I takes place during the uh, the beginning of this time period. And uh, some people might be like, okay, well, during times of war, there's always less freedom. I mean, this was true during the Civil War as well, when you know newspapers were getting shut down, uh, et cetera. Why was this time... Uh, different? Well, I think there were a couple things that happened. One, wars do always set off a kind of hysteria in almost every country. And U.S. entry into the First World War in April of 1917 certainly did so. It was followed about six months later by another event, which was the uh, Bolshevik takeover in Russia which was something that terrified many people in the American establishment. They were afraid unrealistically, because I don't think there was a chance of it, that the Russian Revolution might spread to the United States. And these two things together provided an excuse for a crackdown on dissent of all kinds. Initially, it was directed against anybody who opposed the war, uh, and that was because there was some opposition to joining the First World War. When Congress voted on it, for example, there were six senators, both Republicans and Democrats, who voted against going to war, 50 members of the House of Representatives, again, both Republicans and Democrats, who voted against going to war. Many Americans felt this was a European quarrel. The United States had not been attacked. Whatever the rights and wrongs of what was going on in Europe, uh, it wasn't our business. So there was considerable opposition to the war, more so on the left than on the right. But, you know, at various points on the political spectrum, people felt going to war was a bad idea. The government wanted to crush that dissent. 
Then when the Russian Revolution happened, the long struggle that had been going on for many years between the labor movement in the United States and big business, which wanted to essentially suppress almost all labor organizing, intensified. And that added to the repression. So it was a very tough time. Most people you know, don't know that during those four years, there was press censorship on a large scale. The government uh, effectively shut down some 75 newspapers and magazines. There was political imprisonment on a large scale. During those four years, more than a thousand Americans went to prison uh, for a year or more and a much larger number for shorter periods of time solely because of things they wrote or said. And there was also vigilante violence, a lot of which was encouraged by the government. Yeah, you, you mentioned the, the Bolshevik revolution happening and people in power being afraid of that. Um, also, people talk about, I mean, one of the things that's uh, looking back at this time period, maybe a, a little hard for us to understand is when people talk about like the Overton window of acceptable politics, it feels like during this time period, it was blown way open where you had the Socialist Party was getting millions of votes. Uh, Emma Goldman, an anarchist, was having like real influence in the country. Um, given this backdrop, you said it was unrealistic for people to think that there was going to be a, a Bolshevik type revolution in the States. Um, but wasn't there some kind of ferment going on? Well, there was certainly a, a more of a left-wing presence in the United States than there has been for many years. But the Socialist Party, which was the largest uh, such group, which had won 6% of the popular vote for the presidency in 1912, was led by Eugene Debs, who was a man deeply committed to nonviolence and to the electoral process. Uh, you know, he was not somebody advocating violent revolution in the streets and, uh, you know, fairly quickly came to oppose the Bolsheviks in Russia when he saw what they were up to. But he was a threat to the presidency of Woodrow Wilson because he opposed the war and he had many followers. And comparing it with what's happened much more recently, uh, you know, in the 2016 campaign for the presidency, Donald Trump's followers chanted, lock her up, lock her up, lock her up about Hillary Clinton. Well, Woodrow Wilson did lock Debs up. Yeah. Debs uh, spoke out very strongly against the war in 1918. He was uh, <laughs> indicted under the Espionage Act, put on trial. The trial judge just happened to be a former law partner of uh, Wilson's Secretary of War, and he was sentenced to 10 years in prison. And he was actually still in prison more than two years after the war ended uh, in November of 1920, when he won nearly a million votes on the socialist ticket, running from inside the federal penitentiary in Atlanta. Yeah, you mentioned this, the, uh, the Espionage Act there, which is an act that sometimes crops up uh, today and usually is a, a tool to sort of silence whistleblowers. So clearly people in charge feel like this is uh, you know, still a useful tool. W what was its original purpose? Was there any legitimacy behind the idea of it? Well, there's legitimacy behind the idea, but not 
in practice carrying it out. The an amended version of the Espionage Act is in, in, in effect still today. And ironically, uh, maybe what gets Donald Trump in trouble for those classified documents at uh, Mar-a-Lago. Uh, but when it was passed in a uh, few weeks after the US entered the war in the spring of 1917, it essentially enabled the government to shut down dissent against the war. For example, uh, it gave to the postmaster general the power to declare a newspaper or magazine unmailable, which meant it couldn't travel through the US mail. Now that didn't affect daily newspapers, which were you know, sold on street corners or delivered to people's homes, but almost all of them were wholeheartedly behind the government. But it affected weeklies, monthlies, journals of opinion, the great bulk of the country's socialist press, the great bulk of the country's foreign language press. And as I said, some 75 newspapers and magazines were effectively shut down by being prevented from traveling through the US mail. Hmm. The Espionage Act was called the Espionage Act, but of the 2,000 or so people indicted under it, only about 10 were actually accused of being German spies. Uh, Germany had had uh, a considerable espionage uh, apparatus in the United States for some years, but it had virtually all been closed down because a couple of years before the U.S. entered the war, a uh, German agent uh, fell asleep on a streetcar in New York and got off the car, leaving his briefcase behind, which was immediately seized by the Justice Department agent who was tailing him. And that completely unraveled Germany's American spy network. Fascinating. Um, on this question of press censorship, one of the there are a number of just like wild stories that you you describe in this book where some guy uh goldstein shows like a, a movie of the revolutionary war and he gets thrown in prison because you know great britain is supposed to be our ally and this is subversive content uh someone else is like you know i wish wilson was in hell and they go well that must be a murder threat because the only way he could be in hell is if he was dead and uh, pe people are getting like tarred and feathered because they're not buying like government war bonds, et cetera. Um, that's the government's reaction. But what about the general public? Are people sort of on board for uh, this crackdown on dissent? You know, you can't talk about that with a lot of precision because there were no opinion polls in those days. Yeah. But clearly, a majority of the population, not an overwhelming majority, but clearly a majority of the population was pretty enthusiastic about the war. And, you know, things like a mob forming to tar and feather somebody who refused to buy war bonds, yeah. uh, which is something that happened uh, in several different cases, that's something that doesn't happen unless there's a fairly strong groundswell of opinion uh, in a community and a fairly strong intolerance for dissent. Uh, I'd like to think that in the hundred years since then, Americans have developed somewhat more respect for the First Amendment uh, and for uh, people who dissent from the status quo, because certainly people who were, for example, conscientious objectors to World War II were not treated with the 
often murderous brutality that happened to those who had the courage to resist uh, World War I. Uh, so there was a lot of intolerance in the air. Remember the United States in 1917, we were just a couple of decades away from the frontier, the frontier days where large swaths of the Western part of this country were being seized by force of arms from the Native Americans who had been living there for, for millennia. Uh, and, you know, it was a, there was a much rougher spirit in the air. That question of free speech, one of the uh, phrases that sort of has co coalesced around it uh, is uh, you can't say fire in a crowded theater. People go, oh, well, that's the limit of free speech. But interestingly enough, that phrase comes from a Supreme Court decision during, you know, someone uh, objecting to World War I. And the Supreme Court basically said, well, that's the equivalent of saying fire in a crowded theater. That's not allowed. And I, I, I'm pretty certain that same decision would not be made today in the Supreme Court. Um, um, but clearly, free speech had not come into its own yet, had it? I, I think you're right, Duncan. Uh, the, the whole story behind that phrase is an interesting one. Uh, naturally, people who cared about civil liberties, lawyers, dissenters against the war, uh, you know, were deeply upset with the Espionage Act. And there was a case that came which people hoped would be sort of a test case to find the law unconstitutional, involving some members of the Socialist Party in Philadelphia who had mailed leaflets opposing the draft to young men who were about to receive their draft notices. They were indicted under the Espionage Act. Their case wound its way up through the courts. And in early 1919, after the war was over, it came before the Supreme Court. And people who cared about these issues put a lot of faith in uh, Justice Oliver Wendell Holmes Jr., you know, who was thought of as a big believer in civil liberties. To their horror, the court unanimously upheld the conviction of these folks who'd written the leaflets, and the decision was written by Holmes who used, you know, a phrase, something like, you know, free speech is one thing, but it doesn't give you the license to yell fire in a crowded theater, which was a ridiculous thing to say mm -hmm. about people who'd taken a principled opposition to the draft and had written a leaflet declaring that. Um, then later that year, fall of 1919, another case came before the Supreme Court, the Abrams case, also involving people who'd written leaflets and actually leaflets in both English and Yiddish and tossed them out the window of a factory in New York City where one of them worked. They were indicted and imprisoned under the Espionage Act. When their case came before the Supreme Court, uh, Holmes, who was then 78 years old, I believe, was large enough to change his mind. And he told his fellow justices that he'd had second thoughts about the Espionage Act, and he was not going to vote to uphold it. They were so upset, his fellow justices, that three of them came to see him at his home and tried to talk him out of this and said, you know, we really need to hang together on this. They appealed to his past. 
He'd been an officer in the Civil War and the Union forces and had been wounded and his sword was actually hanging on the wall above them as they spoke. And we know what they said because Holmes's law clerk was listening in from the next room through a half open door. But he then dissented from the Supreme Court decision upholding the Espionage Act this time around and his colleague, Louis Brandeis joined him. Supreme Court dissents don't, don't make law, of course, the way majority decisions do. But I like to think of that moment, and I think many other people do, as sort of the beginning of a time when 20th century America began to take the First Amendment much more seriously. Would the Espionage Act, do, is it in its, um, in, in its current form, would you consider it to be unconstitutional? I mean, it hasn't been struck down as far as I'm aware. It hasn't been. I'm not a lawyer, and I'm also, to tell the truth, not familiar with all of the different ways that it has been uh, amended over the years. Right, yeah. I do think it goes too far. It's the law that has been used to uh, indict both uh, Julian Assange and Edward Snowden whistleblowers. Um, one can have, uh, you know, hostile opinions towards those people. I personally think Assange is kind of a loathsome guy on many counts, including what he did. But I don't think whistleblowers ought to be sent to prison. And I don't think the disclosure of classified documents that were obtained uh, through another source is something that uh, ought to be an indictable offense. Well, uh, on the subject of making comparisons to today, uh, would you say that Eugene Debs, when he was sent to prison, was he canceled? Is that an appropriate uh, verbiage? Certainly, certainly the government tried to cancel him. I mean, sending somebody to prison for a 10-year sentence is is certainly doing that. Uh, Nonetheless, uh, they did... You know, nobody stopped the Socialist Party from putting him on the ballot as their candidate for president. He was allowed to make a to issue a 500 word statement each week to the press during the campaign. So that's not complete cancellation. Yeah. As he as I say, he got more than 900,000 votes. Uh, at that time, this was the presidential election, November 1920. Woodrow Wilson. Um, uh, the next year, left the presidency in early 1921. His his term expired. Uh, he was succeeded by Warren Harding, who, for all his faults, he's certainly not the most honest of American presidents, had uh, much greater tolerance for dissent and actually told a friend of his off the record, you know, Debs was right. We never should have been into that war. Uh, and he let Debs out of prison uh, and actually invited him to stop in in Washington on his way home and for a visit. And uh, when Debs left Harding's office at, after that visit, he told reporters, you know, I've run for the White House five times, but this is the, the first time I've actually gotten near. <laughs> that, uh, that mention of the end of Wilson's term, this is after he had had his stroke and uh, a couple sort of dodgy characters um, seemed to uh, capitalize uh, on Wilson being incapacitated. J. Edgar Hoover uh, and the Attorney General Paul Palmer. 
who started executing uh, what become these these Palmer raids. Um, wh- what was the goal of these raids? Well, we have to sort of roll the clock back to the mood of hysteria that, and I think one has to call it that, that existed in the United States through the combination of all of the super patriotism of the war years, then followed by the uh, Russian Revolution, the fear that some people had that it would spread to the United States. And the year after the war, 1919, was in particular a very stormy time. Uh, Four million men were released from the armed forces. They came home to a society where there weren't jobs for them because the factories that had been making tanks and ships and guns and planes and ammunition for the war were shut down. So there was a lot of unemployment. There was huge inflation. Uh, It was a year when uh, one out of five American workers went on strike. Very stormy times. And the leading candidates for both the Republican and Democratic nominations for the presidency in 1920 were both trying to capitalize on that by promising massive crackdowns on the left and massive deportations. And Wilson's attorney general, A. Mitchell Palmer, uh, tried to get out ahead of the pack by actually doing the deportations. And he staged something that has gone down in history as the Palmer raids, late 1919, early 1920, where they uh, arrested and questioned uh, about 10,000 people throughout the Northeast and Midwest, looking for radicals and looking for radicals who had not yet become American citizens because they could then be candidates for deportation. Um, And uh, these raids actually were really stage managed by Palmer's 24-year-old assistant, J. Edgar Hoover, who was somebody who would go on to later in life amass immense, immense power. Uh, They arrested all these people, uh, and then they ran into problems because uh, a quite heroic effort uh, by one man, essentially, managed to save thousands of these folks from being arrested. And here's how that happened. Palmer's Justice Department had the authority to make arrests, but deportations had to be approved by something called the Immigration Bureau, which fell under the Department of Labor. And through a series of flukes, the Secretary of Labor was on sick leave. The person who normally would have taken his place had just resigned to run for Congress. The third ranking person in the department became acting Secretary of Labor. His name was Louis F. Post. He was a good guy. He was a former progressive journalist. He was not a radical. He was not a socialist or an anarchist or anything, but he was a strong believer in civil liberties. And didn't think anybody should be deported from the United States because of their political opinions. He was also a very skillful bureaucrat and an experienced lawyer. And he managed to invalidate the warrants under which these thousands of people had been arrested. And we don't know the precise number, but it's probably on the order of three to 5,000 people who would have otherwise been deported from the United States had it not been for Post's uh, intervention. Yeah, and uh, one of the things that's, when you you mentioned Jagger Hoover taking immense power uh, in the future, 
What does this say about the FBI that a guy like this who becomes its leader um, cut his teeth really just like cracking down on American dissent? This was not like, oh, we've got to catch the criminals or anything like that. It, it seems to be just purely about repressing political actors. That's right. Well, Hoover Hoover was a strange and interesting guy, you know, really the most powerful unelected American of the 20th century. Uh, and during his long reign as head of the FBI, he was at, at that point, it was just called the Bureau of Investigation. They added federal to its name in the 1930s. And he did not yet, he was not yet its chief, but he was head of what they called the radical division of the Bureau of Investigation. At that point, and for the rest of his life, Hoover was always much more concerned about the threat of communism than he was about things like white collar crime or the mafia, both of which he was rather slow to, to move against. Um, and this was a, a period, you know, 19, we're talking now 1919, 1920, when uh, the U.S., the, the actual communist movement in the United States was never that large. At its peak in this period, there are probably about 40,000 members of the two squabbling communist parties in the United States. But nonetheless, that gave Hoover an excuse to orchestrate this enormous crusade, which resulted in the Palmer raids where some 10,000 people uh, were seized and questioned. Uh, so he was driven always by this um, fear of communism, which I think, you know, was on the whole not a very realistic fear. Yes, in later years, the Soviet Union uh, did have a powerful espionage apparatus here and, and, you know, got the atomic secrets and so forth. But there were never that many Americans, never that large a proportion of people in this country who seriously supported communist revolution of any sort. Yeah, one of the funny things that uh, you mentioned is how there's a New York Times story where uh, they're using information, quote, from an official source and talking about the union of Russian workers. And it describes them as these like really, you know, hyper-organized, uh, malevolent characters. And really, they're just like peanuts. But um, it reminds me a little bit of when Dick Cheney uh, gave information about, you know, Iraq being connected to 9-11 and it gets printed in the New York Times. And then the next day he's, you know, at a podium saying, look at this article in the New York Times. <laughs> like, it's wild. That's, how it works. that's a good analogy, Duncan. Very, very good. Because I think, you know, unscrupulous politicians, whether Dick Cheney, J. Edgar Hoover, any number of others we can mention, um, often are very good at making use of their allies in the press. And throughout this period, uh, 1917-21, that I was writing about, the daily press in this country, including the better papers like the New York Times that should have known better, were really awful on the whole. They repeated uncritically pretty much whatever people in the government told them. Uh, if the government told them, you know, the Union of Russian Workers is plotting a violent revolution in the United States, they would report that. And then, as you say, it then allows, you know, Hoover or Cheney or anybody else to then point to this and say, uh, look what the press is saying here. 
Yeah. Yeah. It's, uh, you know, when you talk about writing this book, at least in part to make sure that we remember this history, it, you know, on the subject of like the Bush years, that's when I grew up at least. And I, I remember how hated George W was where like he had the lowest approval rating, I think of any president ever. And now it feels like he's just like this, like cuddly guy. On TV. <laughs> I and, know you, <laughs> you know, and it's like people forget. And that's just in my lifetime, you know, yeah. never mind a hundred years ago. Uh, why does this forgetting happen? Is, is it just like the natural result is it the path of least resistance if we're not just like telling the story again and again well in the case of why we feel differently about george w bush today i think it's because uh you know donald trump was so much worse uh and uh, so he looks good by comparison so i think it certainly helps one president's presidential stature if you can get succeeded by somebody who is really appalling then it'll make you look better in the eyes of the public. Um, but, you know, we, we're a country that forgets things pretty quickly. I think we've completely forgotten, you know, except for specialized historians, and there's some good ones out there, uh, all, a lot of the terrible stuff that happened in 1917 to 21. And I think a lot of the outrageous things that Trump said during his presidency have caused us to forget the ravages of the Iraq war that happened uh, solely as a result of George W. Bush and Dick Cheney uh, invading this country that uh, you know, was not a very nice regime to begin with, but certainly what replaced it was an enormous amount of violence that I don't think would have happened had it not been for the US invasion. Uh, a great deal of bloodshed and the creation of things like the Islamic state, which didn't really exist before. Yeah. Yeah. You mentioned how uh, we easily forget in this country. And I wonder if you think it, it has to do with the fact that America is a particularly uh, rootless country where the, the only people who can claim to have like a, a rooted status on this land uh, were basically uh, exterminated, wiped out. Um, Black Americans were like ripped from their homelands, put here. And, uh, you know, immigrants, uh, like European immigrants who came over, uh, sort of left their roots behind and got gobbled up into this like weird makeshift identity of just generic white guys. Uh, is this part partly to do with the fact that we forget so easily, we, we just don't have a sense of rootedness? Well, I think all that's true. But, you know, in studying other countries for the other books I've written, I think every country has a strong tendency to mythologize its past. Everybody wants to think they have a glorious past. Um, you know, uh, Great Britain, for example, I, I did a book about uh, Bury the Chains, about uh, the slavery and anti-slavery in the British Empire. And somehow or other, the British managed to have turned to the fact that they were the world's largest slave trading nation and that they had uh, hundreds of thousands of people in slavery in the British West Indies. In their mythologizing, they've managed to turn that into 
giving themselves credit for abolishing slavery in the 1830s. And throughout the rest of the 19th century, you know, there were great production of images of regal Britannia sitting on her throne and grateful kneeling former slaves casting off their chains at her feet. And British slavery was always talked about in those terms until in recent years, uh, there's been a much larger black population in Britain and who demanded that it be talked about in different terms. And I've studied, for instance, the way the uh, 200th anniversary of Britain's ending the slave trade was celebrated in 2007, where throughout the country, there were museum exhibits about the horrors of slavery, uh, uh, you know, about the enormous slave revolts in the Caribbean, which really had much more to do uh, with ending slavery than British benevolence. These were talked about now, but that's because there are now more than 2 million people of African descent living in Britain who've demanded that. Uh, so all countries tend to mythologize their past, and the United States is no exception. We have a heavy dose. Absolutely. Um, Adam, before we go here, uh, what is, do you think, the, the lesson to be drawn here uh, from this period of history that you write about in the book, where it seems like the labor movement uh, recovered um, largely after this crackdown? Uh, there was, um, you know, future left descent um, afterwards, took time, um, but movements were rebuilt. Uh, for our moment, what uh, what can we glean from, from this, uh, this era? The main thing I want people to take away from American Midnight is the sense that democracy and civil liberties are fragile. You know, we have a constitution that guarantees on paper a lot of remarkable things, but it can very easily, portions of it can very easily go up in smoke when there is crisis, pressure. Uh, American entry into the First World War was one of those crises that pushed us over the brink back then. The threat of the Russian Revolution was another. I don't know what the crises will be in the years ahead. We can certainly anticipate some of the pressures that this country is going to be under. We're going to be under increasing pressure from uh, the warming of the earth, uh, drastic weather crises, and an increasing flood of refugees from the equatorial parts of the world that are going to become uninhabitable as the decades go on. Um, I don't want that or any other crises that, that may be in our path to make us forget about those constitutional guarantees of human rights, which are so, so important. They're fragile, we have to guard them. Absolutely. Uh, Adam, the book is American Midnight, The Great War, A Violent Peace and Democracy's Forgotten Crisis. Thank you very much for your time. Thank you, Duncan. It's a pleasure being with you. Thank you to Adam Hochschild, and thanks for listening to Dunk Tank. I'm Duncan Gammy. See you next time.